From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Elementary students are back in school in one small Colorado town, where keeping COVID-19 away means the kids help the grown-ups. In our cafeteria, kids pick that job up. They're helping for the lunch, and we get them gloves, and they help us wipe down the surfaces before they head back to the classroom. Plus, the ins and outs of online education. We'll find out how parents and teachers can keep kids interested in learning, even from afar. Then, recent shootings in urban areas have community leaders working on innovative ways to keep young people engaged. Later, the domino effect climate change is having on freshwater in the Arctic that has widespread impacts far beyond the polar tundra. And how the pandemic's been like whiplash for Boulder bluegrass outfit Beauregard. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The 2020 graduates of Miami Yoder School accepted their diplomas in May. They wore caps, gowns, and masks. The crowd you hear there was small, but the ceremony was streamed live on Facebook. While summer is almost over, this week the district began classes in its single school building, about 35 miles east of Colorado Springs. There was never really much question that the 300 students, from preschoolers to high school seniors, would go back in person. I'm joined by Miami Yoder Superintendent and High School Principal Dwight Barnes. Dwight, welcome. Welcome to you. Like all Colorado schools, Miami Yoder closed last spring and went to remote learning. What did that look like for you all? It was kind of a mixed bag. Probably at least a third of our students do not have internet access out here. Some of my staff members don't have internet access out here um, just because of the terrain. So what we did is we did some online work, and then we once a week delivered work along with food to the kids with my buses. And you've had a couple of days of orientation earlier this week. Were there any surprises or lessons learned this early on in this next school year? My biggest one is, as schools look to, to get started again is, is trying to fit, make your staff feel as safe as possible. Um, and, and, and that's a tough process. There's just different levels of concern when it comes to COVID. And so we're just doing our best to make everybody feel as comfortable as they can in the environment. And now that you're back to school full-time, how will days look different, the physical layout, the scheduling, compared to when the virus hit? Um, we adjusted a few things in scheduling. The nice thing with our program and our school is we're kind of broke up already by high school, middle school, my preschools, and, and a whole separate room, um, and my elementary. So we adjusted some elementary schedules, so we only had about half of those kids coming out, for example, to recess or to, to lunch at the same time, and cut their schedule in half. The other part of the schedule stayed the same. As far as the classroom goes, a lot of work typically in small group instruction, and that's faded more to traditional rows where we can get the, the social distancing as best as possible. The mask mandate, we do the best we can. Difficult to wear a mask all day long, um, so we work on, the, on, on just giving them a chance to not have the mask on. We take in... Um, it, just as far as the mask goes and then social distancing, and then finally we're doing a lot of the hygiene side, um, cleaning surfaces multiple times a day, coming into the room, you hand sanitize, going into the cafeteria, you hand sanitize. Um, so we, we pretty much have really picked up the hygiene level on that. And it sounds like masks may not be required, at least not all day. And, you know, we try to follow the mandate, but the other part of it with us is, is I do not want to have students excluded because they don't have a mask or I have a few people that have exemptions. 
And so what we do with those, and we can do that because of our size, we socially distance those students. So in a classroom, a student that doesn't have a mask or may not be able to wear one, we simply keep them away from the other students and the staff member. And how about the little kids? How are they doing picking up with the new cleaning protocols and all of the new protocols, really? They actually hop in and help us. Um, a couple of elementary teachers I know have already set up a job specifically to help them with the cleaning or like in our cafeteria, kids pick that job up. They're, they're helping from the lunch and we get them gloves and they help us wipe down the surfaces before they head back to the classroom. Oh, wow. And what happens if somebody does show up sick? We've got procedures set in place. If we have one that shows up and we've got a, a chance to take and monitor them, and then we will pick up the vigilance on that particular group of students, whatever cohort it is, probably look to do temperature checks twice a day, probably go to hourly cleaning of the classroom. We'll definitely increase how much that is, and then we'll just continue to monitor everybody that's involved. Those that may be the sick or have been, will obviously be quarantined at home, and we'll take and help them with remote learning for the week, two weeks they're out. And will the school do any testing for students or staff? Um, we're not. Um, part of our, our health program and stuff, we've got a, we work with a local group that, that if the staff needs to be tested, they'll take care of them. Um, and then the next group is even off. It's called Peak Med. They've even offered, um, if I've got a, a family that has trouble with, with health care, having to get in, that they will telemedicine in for them and, and help them do a screening as well. And there's a very small rate of COVID infection in your area, but people travel back and forth to Colorado Springs, too. Are you worried that there could be an outbreak that children and teachers might really get sick? You know, it, it's it's always a concern, um, probably the biggest one, but I have to balance that with effective education, which is what we do as a school. Um, I have probably 12 to 15 staff members that come out of Colorado Springs, they're great professionals. They're very good about, you know, being aware of what they're doing, why they're in town. So I, I feel comfortable with what we have, but it's always a concern. Um, and have you heard anything from teachers about how they're feeling about coming back to school in person? You know, that, the advantage of small school, they all want to get back and, and be with their students and get with their students. Um, we build those strong relationships, and, and they're all happy to be on campus, which is awesome, but they still have that concern of, of COVID and what it, what's going to happen. So. And I understand that you haven't had any teachers leave because of concerns over COVID or coming back in person, right? Um, no. Um, in fact, it, it was kind of weird. This is the first year that I haven't hired any educational staff um, in the summertime, um, so they all stay put. Is there a threshold or a point at which the amount of virus in surrounding areas or at the school could force you to shut down? You know, we worry about it. Um, and I couldn't tell you what that level exactly is, but I think if things increase, there would be a point we have to have that conversation on. Do we continue or, you know, do we head home for two weeks? We're set up to do that. We picked up some additional iPads, so every student has one available to them. We've got them checked out to them. 612 always takes those home. K-5 leaves them in the classroom. But if I had to shut down for like a two-week quarantine for the whole school, we're set up to send it home. The teachers are prepared to teach them remotely for a couple weeks if we had to. And can you describe the communities that your school serves? What do people do for a living and what's life like out there? A number of people out here are involved in, in um, raising cattle, for example. And we have a few farmers. Um, most everybody here, uh, I shouldn't say most, but many of ours travel into town. A number of them work um, either our military personnel or work on the military bases, for example, like Schriever. Um, Schriever's closer to us than the Springs is. Um, so it's really a mixed bag of, of a little of everything. 
Is food security also a concern for kids coming back to school? I know for a lot of kids in rural places, school can be a place to get a good lunch or a good dinner if that's not always available at home. We were feeding probably almost two-thirds of our students during the, the, the pandemic and the break. We offer a free breakfast. We have free lunch as well. That is also a concern. We know that we have a large section of our population that needs the lunch and breakfast that we do, and and we want to make sure they have access. You had a back-to-school barbecue last week. Did a lot of people come, and what did you hear from folks about the start of the new year? Um, You know, it was, I would say, down from our typical barbecue, obviously, people with concerns. Um, So I probably had maybe 100 to 150. I mean, we usually see about 300 people. Um, we held it outdoors. We were able to take and socially distance them. The ones that were there were happy to be back. Many of them are new families that just wanted to get to know people and get to know our staff. Um, so they did that. And, and it was, you know, as always, it's a great way to start our year off. Um, it was just smaller than normal because of people's concerns. What about sports? Is that a big deal in your area? And will kids be able to play this fall? You know, it is a big deal, and under circumstances now, no. Um, Chassa has four sports they've approved for the fall semester, which is softball, cross-country, tennis, and golf. We don't do any of those. Most small schools do not. Um, so we're trying to look at what options we can do. They're still going to do football and volleyball and, and those sports, but they're going to happen in the springtime. Chassa is the Colorado High School Sports Association. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me, Dwight. I appreciate the opportunity. Dwight Barnes is superintendent and high school principal at the Miami Yoder School District, about 35 miles east of Colorado Springs. The district has a single school building. About 300 students returned to class this week. But more and more districts in Colorado are deciding not to open for in-person learning this fall, at least for a while because of coronavirus concerns, which means online education is back with many of the same challenges faced last spring. Educators grappling with a new way to teach, students searching for Wi-Fi, and parents struggling to support kids while working. Here's Denver parent Katie Kistler describing her family's brush with online learning last spring. Honestly, it was a disaster. I mean... (laughs) We have a lot going on in our family because I also had a two and a four-year-old here. So, I mean, the hardest part was having the two-year-old mixed with the six-year-old and he just kind of got into all of her work. We have a pretty good workspace set up um, just at our house anyways, but the online part of the remote learning didn't work for us at all. And we just completely abandoned it. And I did my own thing. To get some ideas for parents and teachers, we turn to Sean Michael Morris. He teaches at the University of Colorado Denver School of Education and runs an international gathering of educators called the Digital Pedagogy Lab. Welcome to the Colorado Matters. Thank you, Avery. It's great to be here. That parent is not alone feeling frustrated. I'm sure you've heard it from teachers, too. Paint us the picture of the ideal when online education does work. Um. Yeah, that's interesting. The, I, I had to laugh um, listening to, to uh, Katie's uh, little testimonial because it, it really is difficult. Um, what we're dealing with, uh, with with the COVID situation and, and, and putting kids online um, has been a real challenge. And honestly, um, I'm not sure that online learning was ready for this. Um, I think when online learning really works, you have kids who are able to be engaged in activities that are not just on the screen, but that are activities that are out in the world, 
um, or even in their homes um, in, in different ways. So they're, they're away from the screen and they're working potentially together um, in a family or with their parents, if that's possible. Um, I think that I think there are a lot of challenges here. Right. And we heard earlier that lack of Wi-Fi access, it makes online learning impossible for some school, rural school districts. Um, but I like this idea of phrasing it not as the teachers or parents weren't ready for online learning, but that online learning itself wasn't ready. Uh, teach us some basic vocabulary. What do you mean by online education and how is that different from remote? Good question. Um, online learning traditionally means um, it's entirely everything is entirely um, contained in the computer. Um, so it's a it's a computer interface of some sort, um, usually a learning management system or LMS. And in that, um, in it, you have lectures, you've got videos, you've got all the materials, you've got homework, you've got tests, everything that takes place there. And usually, it takes place asynchronously, which means that students aren't doing it all at the same time. They're not meeting for class times. What we found um, last spring when people went remote their students wanted to, and teachers and parents all wanted to keep some sort of structure um, and maintain class time and have students be meeting in um, in video interfaces um, like um, Zoom or WebEx or other other sorts of ways in which they could interface with each other directly um, at the same time. That's actually much more difficult for uh, for online learning um, to take place because a lot of students aren't available. A lot of students don't have the sort of uh, broadband or, or bandwidth at home. Um, they may not have a space at home that, is, that, um, that isn't shared or that's um, quiet. Um, they may all be sharing a single computer and have more than one student who needs to be online at the same time. Um, so there's a lot of challenges when you try to do it synchronously, when you try to do it all at the same time. Interesting. So the asynchronous approach, when everyone logs in on their own time, that seems a bit like no school, or at least it's a big departure from the schedule that you were talking about that people were trying to keep going. Sometimes it feels like endless worksheets. What are the advantages of asynchronous? Um, endless worksheets, yes, it's absolutely true. Um, the, so the, the advantages of asynchronous are that um, no matter what your situation is, if you're, if, if you're a family living at home and you've got three kids um, and you have one computer, you can, you can yourself schedule out the day according to what's possible for your family. Um, because, uh, you know, mom may need the computer for something at a certain point, And then, um, you know, one of the kids may need it for, for class time at another time. Um, and, and so you can kind of schedule it out yourself. The, um, so the benefit to that is that it's really flexible for, for families. And tell me, how could it be engaging? How how could it be different than just endless worksheets? Um, it's a, that that is a question that I've been working with for about twenty years now, <laughs> um, trying to find the best way to make it really, really engaging. There, there's not a lot of softwares online that 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 make it that way. And honestly, it's up to um, it comes down to teachers. It comes down to teachers um, figuring out ways to uh, to create. What I, I guess what I was talking about before, with, with students being able to leave the computer behind and go do something else in the world. Now, when I say in the world, of course, that's complicated because of COVID right now. They can't really go out in the world as the way they used to be able to. But, um, but you can do things in the house. You can have kids do other kinds of um, activities um, and, and play games. And there's all sorts of learning that can take place that's away from the computer. No, I think that that's probably the way to make it the most engaging. 
And something that we've heard from kids is that they're lonely. And I imagine that that was part of trying to keep remote learning, keeping kids in in the same Zoom classroom with their other students and their teacher. Is there a way to make asynchronous learning social as well? There is. Um, there are, uh, I'm, and I'll be really honest, it's, it does, it's not a, a substitute for in-person learning. Um, the, it's not as social, but there are discussion boards. There are, um, there are ways to uh, be asynchronously connected to um, your, your fellow students. Um, but, but I'll be honest, in the springtime when I was working with teachers um, as they were making this transition, um, one of the things that I really emphasized was reach out to your students, try to find a way to connect with them individually if you possibly can, because sometimes they just need to hear the teacher's voice and that helps them be, feel connected again to their learning. Um, finding ways to, to create social uh, interaction online can be done through, um, through a learning management system, an LMS, um, and discussion forums and that sort of thing. You can also, um, if you find the right sort of platform for it, you can, you can um, even maybe for higher grade levels, you can um, use social media to, to keep people connected. And what other tips do you have for teachers for making online learning work? I would say, I guess the biggest tip that I have is just to be creative. Um, learn, learn the platform you're working with, whatever that platform may be. Um, figure out what its, what its affordances and limitations are, and then be as creative as you possibly can. Um, essentially, bend it to your will. <laughs> make, it, make it teach the way that you teach. Uh, and, and don't think of yourself as limited by um, that interface. Remind yourself that you know what you're doing as a teacher, um, and you're, you are capable of making this work. And what about for parents whose kids are going to be online in the fall? Are there specific ways that they may be able to support their kids? That, I'm, you know, I'm really, I'm always really hesitant to give advice to parents um, because everyone's situation is so difficult. Yeah. But I would say that um, being patient, not expecting, especially if you're online in an asynchronous environment, don't expect your, your, your kid to um, necessarily, you know, wake up early and start the day and take, you know, take their shower and get dressed and do as though they were going to school, be flexible with what that looks like for them. Um, recognize this is a very different situation. And in a similar way, as I would encourage teachers to be creative, I would encourage uh, parents to be creative as well. And to just imagine their home as something that has multiple dimensions. Sometimes it's a learning space. Sometimes it's a relaxation space. Sometimes it's a family space. Um, and to sort of um, be able to shift back and forth between those things as much as possible. Um, again, really hesitant to give parents advice because everyone's situation is so different. So you don't necessarily recommend that students have a strict schedule if their school district doesn't. How much hands-on guidance do you recommend for parents for whom that is an option? Um, there again, I think it depends on the age of the student. Um, if you have a kindergartner who's trying to learn online, um, the, the chances are you're going to have to be really hands-on because they can't just sit in front of a computer and actually uh, do the sort of work that maybe a high school student could do. Um, as your kids are getting older, middle school, high school, I think less hands-on is probably better. Um, letting students be as and, and to develop autonomous skills as, as much as they can so that they can um, sort of figure out their own, their own time during the day, when they're going to do which homework. Um, that I, and that's actually a really wonderful benefit to the asynchronous piece too, because if, you are, if, if you're in high school and you're going from 
you know, English class to health class to social studies. Um, and maybe you're just not really in the right mood for social studies when you hit that room. Um, online and asynchronously, you can kind of say, oh, you know what, I'm really, I, I'm ready to go do that now. I can go do my social studies homework now. Um, so I would say that for parents, being hands-on with, with younger kids is really important. And then otherwise, just checking in and encouraging older students. Do you think that there are some kids that are happier with online learning? I think that there are. Um, there's, a, there's a popular myth with online learning that introverts like it better. Um, I don't think that's a it's not 100% accurate, but it is true that some students really thrive in online environments. Um, some students are, are easily overwhelmed in social situations. Some students um, need more time to process information than they get in class. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ways in which online can be really, really helpful for some students. So, yeah, I think some do definitely do thrive there. And did you think that this day would come when, boom, the whole country is thrust into online learning? Was this... Something that you anticipated at this point? No. And it's not something that I would ever hope for, honestly. Um, online learning should only be a component or an option for, for what we do in education. There should always be on-ground classes if it's at all possible. I, I'm not advocating for them now under these circumstances, but I don't think that we should ever um, move everything into, into, into digital learning at all. I think that we need to um, make sure that we are keeping that that on-ground experience for people. Do you hope that going forward, though, even maybe when we do return to more normal circumstances, that there could be a hybrid learning situation going forward for a lot of students? I think so. Um, I think that I think more and more um, learning is hybrid anyway. Uh, but I think that uh, once this is once we're back on ground. My hope is that we have that we will have learned the ways in which technology can enhance learning, technology can deepen learning, um, and that it can um, provide alternatives for students whose learning may be different. Um, it also is a really great creative space for teachers and learners alike. So to to sort of push away from it when when we can go back on ground and say I never want to do that again um, would be to neglect some some real potential and possibility. And what I hear you emphasizing over and over, what I really appreciate is just emphasizing that every student and every family's situation is really different. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Sean. Well, thank you so much for having me. Sean Michael Morris runs the Digital Pedagogy Lab and teaches at the University of Colorado, Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Together, we've been transitioning to a new normal, and we all have a lot of questions. Your support means you, your friends, and your neighbors will continue to have access to CPR's trustworthy coverage of today's stories. Your membership ensures that this valuable community resource for news and music remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. There are many ways to give, including monthly, as an Evergreen member. Thank you for your support at CPR.org. 2020 could be a record year for crime in cities like Denver and Aurora. Murders are up, and in Denver, a series of recent shootings has alarmed community members and law enforcement. The problems mirror other urban areas around the country. For some, perspe for some perspective, we have Jason McBride with us. He's with GRASP, the Gang Rescue and Support Project. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me. A shooting at a Denver park on Sunday left nine people injured, including several young children. Police suspect in some of the recent violence that it's connected to gangs. What do you know about the, that connection? 
Well, in that uh, situation, is still kind of, you know, something we really can't talk about. But I, I can say that it was at a, a video shoot, um, and it was on a, you know, a part of town where uh, it's controlled by a particular set or, you know, group of people. Um, in that instance, uh, you know, you, you can kind of blame gentrification for this 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 shooting because you've had uh, different groups um forced to move into that part of the city because it's the least expensive part of the city to live in. So uh, you've had groups who've long controlled that area. You have new groups coming in and, and you're going to have problems. There are a lot of tensions. You were in a gang when you were younger. How would you compare what's happening now with the past? It is a totally different world right now. When I was involved uh, in the you know late 80s, early 90s, we went through what is called the, uh, the summer of violence in, in, in 93. We're in the summer of violence right now. This is the new summer of violence. Um, gang gang uh, activity, gang banging is a, a living, breathing thing. It evolves. Uh, so kids these days do not join gangs or do not uh, try to affiliate themselves with gangs the same way we did or the same reasons we did. And, you know, um, back in the day, we identified with a neighborhood, a park, a school. Uh, that's That's what we did. Now these kids are just clicking up you know, seven, eight, nine, ten deep and, uh, you know, forming their own crew, getting a weapon and uh, it's spilling out to the streets. And what reasons do you hear them saying for why they're joining up? I, I think a lot of it is, is systemic. Um, I think a lot of it is, is trauma that has also been passed down uh, generation, generationally. Um, we have a lot of generational gangs in the city. You know, we've had some of these groups who have been uh, established in, in the 80s and, and they have have uh, strongholds in the city, and they've recruited members and, 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 and the same thing. So I think a lot of these things are, are, are learned behavior. Um, our kids are looking at us, our their parents, um, other people, and seeing these behaviors and, and trying to emulate them. And like you said, this is systemic, but this string of violence, it also comes in the midst of a global pandemic and a recession right. and protests over police brutality. So let's start with the novel coronavirus. From what you've witnessed, how much does that play into gangs and violence? I think what we're what we're experiencing right now is, you know, one of the direct results from what what has happened with the pandemic. Um, you know, as I said before, kids, uh, you know, gang uh, or they're banged differently. So a lot of these beefs are starting on social media. So when we're uh, isolated or, or uh, you know, quarantined, these kids did nothing but go on social media and start beefs. Uh, so if you remember, as we as we were starting to get let out in early June, we started to pick up shootings more and more and more and more. And we got to July, all, all hell broke loose. So uh, a lot of this uh, is, is the direct result of, of COVID and, and um, what these kids had nothing to do but, but start beefs in the house with each other and then come out. And that's what's happened. And I think there's also a lot of loneliness during a pandemic and yes. lockdowns. Do you think that there is a sense of belonging or connection that comes as a reason to join or form a gang? Well, I mean, I think you hit that on the head also. I mean, some of these kids come from situations from their own home life where they're trying to get away from uh, people uh, in their own home. And COVID is, is, is forcing them to, to be around those people. Some people don't have great parents or great homes. Uh, so they try to escape those things. And uh, sometimes uh, in our community, you know, people run from bad situations into even worse ones. And then and I think that's what's happening, too. And then there's also the economy. Do the, does the country's economic trouble, does that also have something to do with violence? I, I really do. I think, uh, you know, these are a lot of systemic issues. I think, um, you know, kids and parents are frustrated. 
there's not a lot of money going around. Uh, parents are, are losing jobs or these essential workers in our community are, are being sick and, and losing, uh, you know, their jobs and their homes. And, and this is the reason. And is there any evidence that police are holding back from getting involved because they're reluctant due to anger at police? That's a very, very good question. Uh, I think this entire climate is, 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 is kind of we're all trying to fill each other out. This is definitely a new, uh, new America uh, or we're on, on, on pace. So I'll give you an example. There was a, a kid that was uh, shot and killed uh, Juneteenth this year in a, in a park. Uh, in Aurora. And I think um, in that situation, there was no park permit, no security. Um, and then you did have police rolling through, but they kind of backed off because of the climate, because it was Juneteenth, because it was a group of uh, young black kids and they didn't intervene. And then and think that may have, um, you know, helped that situation um, the way it did if they would have broke it up. You know, we never we might not have had that situation. So I think police are walking on eggshells, too. And how closely do you or your organization work with police to try to address the violence or the tensions that exist right now? Well, we don't work directly with the police at all. Uh, we work with the kids. That's what, what that's what we're about. Our organization was set up, you know, 26 years ago, um, you know, in in. in uh, to help, you know, kids, you, you know, we, we started 13, but now uh, it's gotten younger and younger. So we help kids uh, who are, you know, affiliated with gangs, trying to leave gangs. Uh, we also provide support to uh, people who have left gangs. So um, we don't work directly with, with police. We work directly with the uh, the community. And you and other black leaders, you've been helping organize safe zones in Denver. Other cities have them as well. Tell us a little bit about what that means. Yes, um, we've been doing safe zones the last three weeks. And, and, let me just say my version of the safe zone is is, is kind of different than what we've been doing. Uh, the safe zones we've been doing have been kind of pop-ups in, in areas that uh, have had high incidences of, of youth and gang violence. Um, you know, we've, we've done these things. Last week we did one uh, in the... Uh, in the Whittier cold neighborhood, uh, it was from 7 to 11 p.m. We brought in food, uh, a video game truck. We did a uh, outdoor movie. So we just want to give kids uh, a place where they can come, have some fun, eat some food. And, and, and the, you know, the most important thing is just, just keep them safe. And are kids showing up? Yeah, we've uh, had, I think we had 50 kids uh, last week. We had 45 or 50 kids the week before. Uh, we're going to do uh, one this Saturday in Montbello, which is... Uh, we're going to call it Arcade Night. So we're going to have uh, Mortal Kombat, Ninja Turtles, um, NBA Jam arcade games. We'll also have uh, the video game truck. So it's going to have uh, all the Xbox One, PlayStation 4 games. We'll have a couple Madden tournaments, NBA 2K tournaments, and we'll also have the uh, giant screen out in the park. So uh, this is going to be a real big one. We're expecting probably in upwards of 100 kids for this one. And when you're talking to kids when they show up to these safe zones, what are they telling you about the value of the safe zones or why they're there? Well, I mean, they they want something to do, and they know if they come to the safe zones, that it's going to offer them some kind of entertainment in 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 a climate in which they don't have one. Uh, also, you know, these these kids are, are are quite you know quite frank and honest with you, and they'll tell you. Um, you know, I, I talk to kids all the time and, and they're looking for things to do. They're looking for positive things to do and positive places to be. Uh, Denver nor Aurora are, are offering any of those places. Uh, so we have kids at any particular time of day or night, you know, just walking around um, looking for things to do. And, and a lot of time it's, it's, it's uh, ending up negative. 
And obviously without sharing names, but are you able to give us an example of a kid who felt like this has kept them away from some of the trouble they've been getting into before? Um, there are several kids, you know, several kids that I, I talk to that uh, say, you know, they call me Mr. <laughs> they say, Mr., look, I'm, I'm looking to do something different. I want to get involved in some positive things. So these are the, some of the things that we're, uh, we're, we're offering. And this school year is unprecedented. Kids won't be at a physical school building as education in many places moves online. How concerned are you about how that will affect kids going into the fall? I'm definitely concerned about that. Uh, you know, kids in our community, you know, already are, are behind. And I think uh, we really run a risk of, of, of losing an entire generation if we don't figure this this thing out. Um, you know, our kids are, 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 you know, in our community, uh, a lot of families don't have the luxury of, of leaving a parent at home uh, to make sure kids are uh, logged on virtually and doing the things they're supposed to be doing. So uh, in those situations, you know, it, it goes right back to, uh, you know, to safety also. You know, these kids uh, need to have some um, supervision, you know, during the day, making sure they're they're uh, doing their work and, and also in a safe place uh, where, you know, there's there can't. Uh, be any of that uh, gang activity or youth violence that we've seen. And are there specific ways that you're going to be able to support kids during the school year or hope to be able to support kids during the school year? Yes, we're working uh, with uh, Ken Ho and Westside uh, Development on on opening a, a space um, where we can get kids and, and, and do some, uh, you know, just some learning there. We're, we're trying to get some teachers involved. So we're just trying to put some things together logistically uh, to, to make some of these things happen. And it sounds like there's certainly been an increase for the need for your group during the pandemic. Has the demand also increased over the years leading up to this? Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, like I said, uh, gangs are a living, breathing thing. And, and if you look at um, what's been going on here in Denver the last two or three years, we've had uh, high incidence, incidents and uh, uh, differing examples of, of, of youth violence. Um, and it's gotten progressively younger. Uh, you know, both the victims and, and the perpetrators are some of these crimes, too. So uh, gang activity is, is still very, uh, you know, in your face here, here, in, here in the city. Um, but the, uh, the trend is that these kids are a lot younger uh, getting involved in doing some of these things. Well, Jason, I want to thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jason McBride is an education specialist with the Denver-based GRASP, the Gang Rescue and Support Project. We spoke about the rise in violent crime in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Boulder resident Angela Bryan did not want heavy painkillers like Oxycontin or codeine when she was battling breast cancer. She had another idea for how to deal with her pain. I actually emailed the surgeon through the patient portal and said, I don't want to take opiates. You know, I want to talk about cannabis for pain management. Marijuana, pain, and Angela's story on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The Arctic Ocean is getting less salty, and that could have a domino effect on other ecosystems, disrupting ocean currents and even changing weather patterns in Europe. So what's leading to that drop in salinity? Researchers from CU Boulder have been analyzing climate models and recently published their findings. Alexandra Yan is a professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences and the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and lead author on the study. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, good morning. 
COVID-19 has made observational studies in the Arctic difficult this summer, but it hasn't specifically affected yours. Tell us a bit about your method. Yeah, so for this study, uh, we use climate models. And so um, climate models are, are big uh, computer models uh, that we run on very big supercomputers. And so uh, in terms of COVID, we're lucky that we can do these things uh, from a distance as long as we have internet. Um, then we can still run these model experiments and analyze those. So it's complicated stuff that you're doing. You're using computer models to understand trends in the salinity of Arctic waters. If you're explaining this to a class of, say, middle schoolers, what are the main takeaways from your study? Yeah, so um, so we use these climate models to look at uh, what's happening in the Arctic to understand the observations that uh, have shown that over the last two decades, the Arctic has gotten much fresher, as you mentioned. And... Um, so what that means is the Arctic is obviously still, the Arctic Ocean is still salty, like all oceans. But what we found is that uh, it's getting less salty over um, over time. So since the mid-1990s, um, it's been getting less and less salty. And what we specifically looked at and wanted to find out is if this is just kind of a natural cycle, just kind of like a swing going up and down, or is this something that's driven by climate change? And how much fresher has the Arctic Ocean gotten in recent years? Yeah, so it's gotten um, a lot fresher. Um, it's about 10,000 cubic kilometers, um, or 10, an increase of 10% of how much fresh water there already was in the Arctic. And that's huge numbers. And so kind of to put that into context, if we put that additional fresh water that has accumulated in the Arctic and spread it out all over the U.S., we would cover the entire United States by about three feet of water. So that's obviously a big change and um, has effects on um, the ocean in the Arctic. And you're trying to understand whether or not it's human-caused or whether this is just natural. What did your study find? Yeah, so we found using these climate models that um, this is this change in the Arctic is driven by climate change already. And it's important to kind of understand whether it's driven by climate change or just a natural cycle, because if it was a natural cycle, we would expect it to reverse again after kind of hitting this maximum, just like when you're in the swing, you go back down after you hit the high point. And as a result, as that reservoir would release fresh water on the way down, it would lead to a short-term increase in the fluxes to the North Atlantic, because that's where all the water that's in the Arctic eventually ends up. But then it would swing the other way again and kind of decrease that flux. So it would only be a short-term increase. But if the freshening is a force change, like we found in our study, then we will see a long-term increase in the freshening in the Arctic and hence in the freshwater flux to the North Atlantic. And such a sustained long-term change has much bigger effects on the ocean currents in the North Atlantic than short-term changes would have that would happen just due to natural cycles. And then there's always the big question of why do we care? So tell us why salinity is important in the Arctic Ocean. Yeah, so that's a really good question. So um, salinity is really important in the Arctic because it affects the density of the water. And in particular in cold regions, the density actually plays a bigger role than temperature in affecting the density. So as we're making um, the Arctic Ocean fresher, the water becomes lighter and tends to stay at the surface. And that keeps cold water at the surface that would normally sink. Um, however, the Arctic is actually already the least salty of the world's ocean. So it has very fresh water at the top, which is one of the reasons why we can actually have sea ice forming in the Arctic. So this observed freshening doesn't fundamentally change the situation in the Arctic. It just makes 
um, the slid on um, the mixing in the Arctic even stronger by making the surface water even fresher. But it really matters outside the Arctic. And what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. As I said, all water from the Arctic eventually ends up in the North Atlantic. And with it, it takes this fresher water, this uh, less dense water. And in the North Atlantic, um, that's not what we normally see. And so there it can really disrupt the steep mixing that normally occurs in the wintertime. And that's really important for driving um, the big ocean currents that redistribute heat from the tropics to the high latitudes. And then the other interesting thing about your study, I feel like, is because it's a computer modeling, you're able to do that without necessarily even leaving Colorado. But you can identify places where other scientists are likely to need to go observe before things change dramatically, right? How do you help other researchers make planning decisions for Arctic expeditions? Yeah, so kind of getting a timeline of knowing when we might um, start to see these changes in the fluxes from the Arctic to the North Atlantic um, is really important because it's not easy to observe changes in the ocean. It takes um, quite a long planning time to kind of get the ship time and put these instruments in the ocean to monitor changes in the ocean. Um, Just like when we send up satellites, we can't just do that overnight. So it takes several years. So knowing that this change, um, as we found in the model studies of changes in these fluxes are potentially ongoing already or might start to occur over the next um, decade, it's really important for kind of Mm. planning to um, put these measurements in place. And that's important to kind of see what that does to the ocean and potential impacts on weather and climate in, in Europe in particular. Well, thank you so much for sharing your research. Alexandra Jan is professor in the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences and the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at CU Boulder. Her research was published last month. In the first week of March, the future was looking bright for Beauregard. The Boulder band was wrapping up in the studio, recording their debut album, Arrows. They were still riding high from winning the prestigious band competition at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival last summer, and they were playing some really great gigs. Dobro player Justin Conrad remembers their last show in the before times. We played a gig right before the lockdown at the Boulder Theater with the Sam Bush Band, which was like one of the highlights of our career to date, you know, and then Sam came out and played with us and we all jammed and it was like the coolest moment ever on stage. And then, like, we went from that. It was like whiplash. A couple of days later, suddenly schools are closed, everyone stay home. And then we didn't play for months. During those stay-at-home months, Conrad says it took some time for the group to find their groove in this new normal. You know, I think there's a lot of fear, a lot of, you know, kind of depression. And, and we just didn't really do anything. We had a couple of uh, we had a couple of Zoom band meetings where what we ended up doing was uh, deep breathing exercises to a guy on YouTube together. But we didn't really start playing any music together until a couple of months in. Uh, you know, we tried the acapella kind of Zoom music thing. And we're a live band and we're a band that really feed off each other. You know, sitting in each of in our individual little pods and playing together just didn't really work for us. So really, we first got together in mid-June um, and got together in someone's backyard and all wore masks and stayed six feet apart. And, and that was really nice. That was like, okay, well... Music hasn't gone away. 
The pandemic not only forced them to cancel all their concert dates, but the timing of their album release suddenly had to be reconsidered. Arrows was already in the can, and they had planned to pay their recording dues with a Kickstarter campaign. And then COVID hit, and it was this really weird moment of, we don't feel comfortable asking people for money. You know, people are struggling right now, and it just didn't seem like the right time, and so we basically shelved the album. And that's a weird thing to do as a musician because albums are very much of the moment. You know, you make the album and it's a snapshot in time. Our, our producer, Nick Forster, framed it that way for us. He said, think of this as a snapshot in time. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's, you know, unless you're Steely Dan. It's supposed to cast the band in a good light as of that time. A couple of months in to the pandemic, we we just looked at each other and said, we have to get this out. We got to release this and, and we got to do the Kickstarter. Otherwise, you know, no one buys records anymore except at shows, which aren't happening. So we need to do the Kickstarter to be able to pay for this because we got to pay our engineer and we got to pay our studio and we got to pay our, our guys who do the videos and, and promotion and we got to manufacture and all that stuff. So we just went ahead and did the Kickstarter and lowered our expectations significantly and it blew up. It completely blew us away that we, we had a $25,000 goal and we hit 25 grand in four days. It made us feel really good about releasing the album. We felt like, okay, we have a community of people that really want to hear this record. That made it feel a little better putting it out at this strange time. One of the songs on the album, A Reasonable Man, subtitled Killdozer, revisits one of the strangest stories in Colorado's recent history. In 2004, a man with a grudge left the small town of Granby in shambles. Marvin Hemeyer fortified a bulldozer with steel, concrete, and guns, and went on a rampage, targeting people he thought were out to get him. In the end, the only casualty was Hemeyer, who took his own life. I think it's a story that needs to be told, and one that lends itself well to a, a story song. John was a hard-headed man, deep in debt, and he made a plan to sell his land and walk away and In writing the song, Justin Conrad took a few artistic liberties, including renaming the character John. Still, as compelling as he finds the story, he recognizes it's a troubling one, and grappled with adding it to Beauregard's songbook. You know, we actually discussed when I brought the tune to the band, is this something we want to sing about because we don't want to give the impression that we're, you know, saying violence and destruction is how someone ought to deal with feeling like they've been wronged. So we, we tried to cater the lyrics to tell the story without moralizing too much about it. Hey, 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 better get out of the way. Judgment's coming and there's gonna be hell to pay. My oh, I see the look in his eye. John is coming for night out on the town. Nothing left to say, gonna tear it all down. As things slowly begin to reopen, Conrad is optimistic about the prospect of returning to live performances, but cautiously. I think if we can do this right, it will lead to more reopening uh, and more opportunities to play music. I want to show that we as an industry can do this in a safe way and in a sustainable way. And And we're not sure what that looks like yet. We're still figuring that out. But so we're being pretty careful to make sure that if we take a gig, we feel comfortable about it. As I look at the valleys down below, 
Justin Conrad plays Dobro in the Boulder bluegrass outfit Beauregard. That's B-O-W as in fiddle bow. On Saturday, the band plays at Upslope Brewery for their Safer Summer Music Series, and on Sunday, they'll be at the Boulder Arts Outdoor Drive-In Festival. Beauregard's debut album, Arrows, is out now. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lil. This is CPR News. Sweet.